The following podcast is scheduled for a 10-count or 45-minute time limit. Coming to you live from Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, this is episode 12 of Bell to Bell with Bobby Blaze. I am your host, Jeremy Vilmer, and now the star of the show, Bobby Blaze. Hey, thanks for the introduction there, Jeremy. It's great to be back in Memphis, Tennessee, MoFo Town, as Hanson Jimmy Valiant used to call it, down there in MoFo. Man, some great, great wrestling that came through Memphis, Tennessee, and that whole territory. And so we're going to have a great episode. This episode is going to be the top 10 greatest wrestling managers of all time. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this. With that said, you want to tell us a little bit about what you have on the uh, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis? And I'll add a couple comments, and then we'll go to a couple shout-outs or what have you. Absolutely. The Mid-South Coliseum was built in 1963, and it was closed down in 2006. It was the home to rock concerts, hockey, pro wrestling, and stadium indoor soccer. Elvis Presley played there. The Beatles did one of their final concerts there. And more importantly, Jerry Lawler gave Andy Kaufman cancer there. (laughs) There you go, man. Well, I'm just going to speak a little about Memphis and the Memphis Territory. A little bit about the Mid-South Coliseum. The things I remember growing up about the uh, Mid-South Coliseum was it was Jerry Lawler versus everyone on the blow-offs. That's why he was the king. He sold it out week after week after week. You know, he drew more people. Of course, they had it every Monday night in Memphis. Uh, He drew more people than Elvis, the king, the king of rock and roll. So um, you've already stolen my heat with the Andy Kaufman deal. (laughs) But it was Jerry Lawler versus everyone. Uh, That was one of the things I wanted to mention. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the Memphis TV. That was one of, um, I won't say favorite, but it was great to see um, my eye. God damn it, my eye. It was the empty arena match between Jerry DeKing Lawler and Terry Funk, uh, with Lance Russell being the other, the other person in the ring. And that's when Jerry Lawler stuck or, uh, Funk in the eye and he, call a doctor, have some compassion, my eye. And it was a great little angle they did. So for one time, it wasn't a sellout because when I was younger, it was the the empty arena match between Terry Funk and Jerry King Lawler. With that said, I'm just going to go over this real quickly. The Memphis Territory uh, was one of the, you know, one of the last territories of surviving the modern day history, if you will. I had a couple chances to go there, and we'll go into that another um, different time. One time I was begging to go there. Uh, it did not work out. I was glad because uh, everything's for a reason. And then the other time I had a chance to go there, it just wasn't feasible for me to do so. With that said, back in the day, I'm going to give you a typical schedule from Mid-South, um, the Memphis Wrestling or the USWA or whatever was going, whatever name it was going under at each time, uh, basically it's Memphis wrestling. The, mis- the Memphis tape, I got it on Saturdays out of Lexington, Kentucky on our local TV. So in 1982, the regular Memphis weekly schedule was on Mondays, every Monday, it was the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. Tuesday, and some of these I knew by heart, was the uh, Louisville Gardens. Wednesday, was Evansville Coliseum, Evansville, Indiana, that is. On Thursdays, and it's usually the first Thursday of the month, and I got to go to a bunch of these. I was lucky enough to do that. Uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, sometimes it was a spot, a spot show on a Thursday. Generally, that was a spot show for a while. 
but then they picked up uh, Lexington, and that became uh, the first Thursday of every month. That was a good deal. Friday was two below Mississippi. And one thing I want to say about that, that's where the great two below Mississippi uh, concession stand fight took place. And a lot of people uh, early on thought that was taken at the um, – Mid-South Coliseum. It wasn't. It was actually in Tubelo, Mississippi at the Coliseum Air. That's where they had that big first concession stand fight between uh, Lawler and Dundee and the Moondogs. And then also on Thursday, sometime, or excuse me, Friday, they'd have a, a Memphis area spot show. Saturdays, you had to be up. Um, you had uh, Memphis TV, so you had to be there for that by 11 a.m. And then that evening, they had a Jonesboro, Arkansas Sometimes that was on a Sunday also. It just depended. But then you had Nashville. So every Saturday night, there's your Nashville Fairgrounds Arena. That was every every Saturday night. And then Sunday, you was in Jackson, Tennessee. And eventually, I think uh, Jonesboro became um, the, one of the shows on Sunday. And those were once-a-month shows. So they had some spot towns on uh, Thursdays and Sundays. But the rest of the week, you pretty much stayed. Once they got Lexington, that took care of the first of the month. Um, that was a typical schedule. It averaged out to be about 2,000 miles per week. And a lot of great wrestlers and a lot of great managers came through to Memphis Wrestling uh, from, you know, Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler on down to, you know, people running a promotion and owning a promotion uh, through the years. With that said, that's just kind of my little rundown on um, the some of the history of Memphis Wrestling. Let me refer you to two things. Um, I don't get any merchandising fees out of this whatsoever. I'm just going to throw it out there. If you haven't seen the documentary called Memphis Heat, do so. It's awesome. It's got all the old guys from Memphis on there. It talks about the towns. It's got interviews with all the superstars there. It talks about Sputnik Monroe, uh, the whole deal with the uh, uh, civil rights during the time of civil rights movements with him drinking down on Beale Street. Um, and also, rags paper and pens, the merchandising of Memphis wrestling by James Cornette and Mark James. So if you get a chance to get that book, you know, just go online. I'm sure you can find them. Uh, I think Cornette's got Cornette's collectibles. Uh, Memphis heat was, um, you probably get it right off of Amazon. Um, but anyway, those are two things, especially for uh, hardcore, uh, Memphis wrestling fans. And that's all I'm going to really say because we've got a couple shout outs to give and I'm glad, though, we, we chose this location because it meant a lot to me as a young man uh, that got to watch this territory evolve every Saturday. And sometimes you get a double play if you got they didn't have anything to fill in on a Sunday. You might have got a repeat, even though you saw the same show the day before. But if Kung Fu Theater was running late on Sunday, you might get the uh, Memphis tape again. And that's kind of cool, especially for a mark like me. Um, anyway. Uh, do you have any shout-outs, Jeremy? You know, I, Bobby, I don't. I do want to – I I had it written down. I wanted to give one, and I think this is the appropriate week to talk about it. But now I can't remember who wrote it, but one guy yeah. tweeted out about our show, um, and he wrote, these guys are southern as hell. And I, that to me was – that to me is funny because I'm from central California. I mean, I'm I not – I thought so, – and it said something about – we're as southern as sweet tea – no, what was it? Gravy and biscuits – Sweet tea, gravy, and grits, or something, and yeah. So yeah, um, I can't remember who that was either, but but I know what you talk about though. Jeremy from California, I'm the hillbilly here. 
Yeah, I'm not even in southern. Stone, I'm not even in southern California. You know? There you go. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> um, okay, but well, but I take right. it as a compliment and thank you. And yes, I do prefer southern wrestling. That's a big part of why we do this show. But yeah. I did want to acknowledge that. Now I'm just embarrassed. I can't remember who wrote it. Um, the thing is, I saw that and I and I cannot not recall a name as well. And that's okay. We appreciate it. Give us a shout out. Use the hashtag BBBB and put it on there to the uh, Bell to Bell Blaze on uh, Twitter. That's where you can find me at. You can find Jeremy at the Geekish Cast, and you can find me at Bobby Blaze seven forty four. And we are using Twitter right now a lot as our social media outlet to get the word out. We have a website that's under construction. It's looking pretty good. We also have a YouTube page. It's brand by Tex Johnson. He's doing a tremendous job over there. Keep it up, Tex. So there's your little shout out, even though he does not expect them. Um, and with this topic being greatest wrestling manager of all time, I want to throw out two just to get them out of the way. One of them was a guy. He didn't make it a big time. He did work out Memphis for a little bit, but he seemed like everywhere he went, he got fired. And I like this guy, but I'm probably one of the few people that did like him. Uh, that one, because we got along outside of ring for whatever crazy reason. A guy named Classy Roy Bass that probably no one out there has ever heard of. Uh, but, man, he was a little prick, a little asshole, a little heat-seeking uh, sawed-off run of a guy that just knew how to get heat wherever he went. I met him on Bobby Fulton shows. And so uh, I don't think you listen to the show, how I doubt he uses a computer or a cell phone or anything else. But who knows if he's out there. I do want to acknowledge that because someone that used to watch me wrestle in Paintsville and Ashland and some of these surrounding counties in Kentucky, Boyd Bass was a hell of a good manager around these areas. The other one, he's not on our list, but I'm going to give him a shout out anyway. And that's Kenny, the star maker, Bowling. So Kenny Bowling, you're not in the top 10, man. But I uh, hope someone will let you know that you are thought of um, in the uh, realm of the professional wrestling because you are, you made a lot of stars. I think you had 54 guys go to the WWE while you was there at Ohio Valley Wrestling. So there's Kenny a shout out. I'd done his birthday bash a few years back and trashed him. And uh, I like Kenny. Again, I'm probably one of the only fucking few it does. But did no, he, we're pals. Did he, did he stick uh, you with the bill? No, no, no. We, we. Luckily, I was out of there. It was on a, it was on a, it was on a talk show. <laughs> Even Cornette the next day asked me, "Man, he thought you hated him." I said, "No, we was just working, of course." But no, the last time I actually think I saw Kenny, uh, in his words, was Bobby. I was handing you the Smoky Mountain Heavyweight Championship belt. So last time I think I actually saw you in person. Why would you do that to me? I said, "Well, it's the birthday bash, you know. We, was, it was supposed to be a roasting, the roasting of Kenny, Star Maker Bowling." So. Anyway, there's him a shout-out. With that said, let's get into Episode 12, The Greatest Wrestling Managers of All Time. How's that sound, Jeremy? That sounds perfect. Um, okay. So let's go with number 10, Precious Paul Ellering. Yes. So Paul Ellering, I believe, actually started in the Memphis Territory, and he hurt his knee in a match against Robert Gibson and then hurt it again shortly thereafter. So he never really recovered from it. And Ole Anderson was the guy who figured out he had a mouthpiece on him and could use him as a manager. I don't know how long it took, but he's eventually teamed with the Road Warriors. And the reason I wanted Paul Ellering on this list is because he wasn't just their on-screen manager. He took care of their travel, their money, their appointments, their timing, everything. He literally managed the Road Warriors. And I thought that was worth being at least number 10 on the list. 
and I will agree with everything you said. I won't add too much to it other than I got to see him wrestle when he was Paul. He went Paul to Bull Ellering at one time, had a tremendous physique. I knew he had gotten hurt, didn't know what, ha didn't know what happened. And um, when you sent me his name, I knew he needed to be on that list, and I think justifiably so. And also the fact that he handled their day-to-day -day activities, staying with that team for that long. I, I, I admire that in any sports organization. So, yeah, uh, he's deservedly so. Coming in at number 10, Precious Paul Ellering. Yeah, um, I, I, I thought that was a great one. Yes. Um then we fall and guys, we had some trouble coming up with this list. <laughs> a lot of people oh, yeah. got put in and taken back out and saved for later. And so if you don't like it, uh, blame it on some blame it on Bobby. Yeah. Blame it on Bobby. Number nine. Blame it on that damn Bobby. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No problem. On me. So number nine, <laughs> we have captain Lou Albano. Yep. Now Lou Albano, uh, was one of what three basic managers that came in at the same time the WWF would be the Grand Wizard Lou Albano and that uh, classy Freddie Blassie. Easy for you to say. Damn near. But <laughs> Captain Lou met Cindy Lauper on a plane one day, and that is where the giant blow up in the eighties of wrestling becoming a common pop culture item started. Yeah, the rock and wrestling connection, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it even went to the point where they had to turn Lou face because he started doing so much charity work. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I, I think he deserves to build this also. And, um, you know, he just, there was just something about him. He, he was, he was a former performer uh, as all, a lot of these guys were turned manager. And he just had that big sloppy look. I just watched him the other day managing, uh, Don Morocco was eating a meatball sandwich while um, <laughs> Lou Albano was managing from the side. He kept giving him a bite of a meatball sandwich. And, and it was just really funny because at the end, Lou takes a bump, and it's just a two-minute, three-minute squash match or whatever. And you can hear the, the general one that wasn't pumped in or piped in uh, sound effect, and Lou took a bump for it. And it, it, it was just pretty funny. So, uh, And he just had that look, man, just that uh, – unique look there's always something with, with managers and stuff that you know he had to who the hell walks around rubber bands pierced through your your face you know and then just uh some people do care about their appearance um he just apparently didn't care that he could wear a, a big old open shirt with his gut hanging out and greasy and and uh you know how many beatball subs did that guy eat but yeah he made it happen for that you know whole rock and wrestling connection like you say to be uh and a big part of wrestlemania one and, and the rest is history kind of say so deservingly so lou albano is on the list at number nine also i wanted to point out he led 15 tag teams to tag team gold. Wow. Hey, was one of them the, the Valiant Brothers? Uh, you know what? It might have been, Bobby, because I, as I was going through the list trying to count everything, I, I kind of quit paying attention to names yeah. and just started going, holy shit, every tag team in the world that had it, gold on them worked with this guy. Yeah, I was just thinking for some reason he managed the uh, Valiant Brothers like sometime in the 70s, and, and I just, just one of those things, just a flashback when you said that, because my brother used to love those Valiant Brothers. And that is just one of the things that just hit me when you when you were talking about it. So I had 15 champions under his uh, helm as the uh, manager, right? Yep. And that's, okay. That's quite a bit. Do you want to introduce number eight? Number eight, Classy Freddie Blassie comes in at number eight. 
the the fashion plate of Beverly Hills, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but yeah, another tremendous performer in the ring, huge star in Japan and out in California. And then as he got older, he went into the managing. And um, I think one of his earlier runs, which he was there several years, of course, he was one of the first ones to introduce, if I'm not mistaken, a young Hulk Hogan uh, to the WWF, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he was just classy Fred Bassey, uh, Blassey. And also he had a song, and I think you and I have talked off the air about this, but I'm going to throw it out there real quickly. We used to talk about, we talked about the Dr. Demento show. Yes. I think you and I spoke about that. And um, he had a song called Piss on That Geek. And uh, when when that song would come on, my brother and I would pop because we knew who Classy Freddie Blassie was. And so, uh, you know, the woman down at the circus, you know, she had a baby and it's a freak and blah, blah, blah. And uh, this one's unique. It's a piss on that geek, you know, and it's just, and if you've ever seen Midnight Alley, um, there's a geek in there, uh, that movie, and it's just, uh, if you know what a, a circus geek is, if you don't, go look it up. If you're too young, uh, go look it up. But uh, he had that song, Piss on that geek, and then um, uh, just great memories for me. And managing-wise, like I said, I'm pretty sure he introduced Hulk Hogan the first run-through uh, or one of his earlier first run through before he got the big run later on. Uh, so that's uh, number set eight was Classy Freddie Blassie. And add what you want there, Jeremy. Well, I will add that he led the Iron Sheik to a title win over oh, Bob yes. Backlund. Yes. And, and then the Iron Sheik lost the title to Hulk Hogan, who was one of Fred Blassie's original managed wrestlers. So Very good. You are absolutely right. correct. He, um, he also was on an episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show where he introduced a fancy new dance move and then picked Dick Van Dyke up over his head and spun him around in a circle. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to check that out. There's you some pop culture trivia. I like that. I like that. Yeah, very good. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, no problem. And I will introduce number seven, which is Sensational Sherry Martell. Wow. First class, man. So Sherry Martell, and then some people say, oh, it's scary, Sherry. But to me, she was sensational. And I had the privilege of meeting her in person. And uh, she come into Smoky Mountain Wrestling and helped out a young girl, uh, young Tammy Fitch back in the day that went on to become famous as Sunny, as we all know by now. But back to Sherry. Um I think for the two or three weeks she was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and I wrote about this in my book, um, she rode with me at least four times out of probably, I don't know, every every two or three days I'd come home, then I'd go back. But she was there, and she had ride with me and a couple other people, um, Tracy's mothers, and, and she had a friend with her named Kathy. And I was driving down a highway on a Sunday. We was heading like from Knoxville. We had been out late, whatever, at the Waffle House and, you know, how you finish up at one of those nights. You're getting up to the next town. The next day we're heading over to Johnson City, Tennessee. And I had a rental car, a real nice one. And, and Tracy guys in the front, Sherry and Kathy's in the back. It's middle of the day, a Sunday afternoon, heading over to Johnson City. Middle of nowhere in Tennessee. Sherry reaches over my shoulder and starts honking the fucking horn. Honk, honk, honk. I'm like, what the fuck? You're going to make me wreck or what? You know, and then she goes, cows, cows. 
and there's a fucking field of cows out in the middle of nowhere. She goes, uh, every, cows need loving too, Bobby. <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, but you're going to try, you're trying to make me wreck them doing 75 miles an hour. And it's that we all had a good laugh, but it's just a really good memory. But for the whole time she was there, she always called me baby blazer. And a lot of people still remember that, that was around me at that time period. She always called me baby blazer, but she was a tremendous, uh, uh, wrestler, a female wrestler. She got her mixed it up with the guys. Then eventually, of course, got in there as Sensational Sherry and, and Scary Sherry. She managed the Macho Man and Harlem Heat and, and, and whoever else. But I just wanted to share that personal story about Sherry. But you go ahead and tell us a bit more about Sherry Martell, please. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad you had a, a personal story because I love when yeah. you have those little interludes. It's, it's great. Um, I, I do want to say, so Sherry Martell actually had a long career as a wrestler and a manager. And uh, in the AWA, she held the AWA women's title three times, and she also managed Playboy Buddy Rose and Pretty Boy, yeah, Playboy Buddy Rose and Pretty Boy Doug Summers when they were the AWA tag team champions, who eventually lost it to the Midnight Rockers, which was Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. Shawn Michaels, she would eventually manage again in the WWF. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard some other behind-the-scenes stories concerning Sherry and Sean, but that would not air. <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Because well, we're not you know. try to bury anyone. No, what, what happens Yeah, what happens between a man and his manager is his business. That's right. You yeah. know, financial situation need to be taken care of sometimes in other ways than monetary processes. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> number six, Missy Hyde. God damn, Missy Hyatt. Uh, you had to I'd, put Missy on this list. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's get to, obviously she is a favorite for more reasons than just what you see in front of you in 1987. Um, she was with uh, Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert when Hot Stuff uh, International was around. Um, she did a nice job of transitioning from management into an announcer interviewer position in WCW. She was in the middle of some really hot feuds, managed the uh, the Steiners, I believe, as a tag team at one point, too, right? Uh, I'll right. take your word for it. If uh, you know, you I say might, so, you're I, correct. I'm not going to fact check you. you no, know I, that. I might be remembering wrong, but I can tell you. I think you are correct. But. Yeah. As somebody who was in their mid-teens when she was on TV, she made wrestling worth watching. Absolutely, man. What a hottie, Missy Hyatt. And I think that um, I need to, we, we spoke, I spoke earlier about Sonny coming in, uh, or excuse me, Sherry coming in. I think that we, we and Sonny is not on this list, so everyone knows, just so we're not trying to throw a swerve at you. But uh, Missy was one of those early on. You know, you mm-hmm. got to go back. People claimed that they was the first, and it's that Missy was actually one of the very first, you know, back in the day. And and that left off a lot of other people. So through our process of uh of elimination and adding, as Jeremy said, we put some thought into this list and we had fun with it. It's always educational. It's fun. So we, we really, that's why Sherry Martell and Missy Hyatt are on this list because we really feel like they deserve to be in the top 10 greatest managers of all time. And so with that said, I'm going to start with number 10, Precious Paul Ellering. Number nine, Captain Lou Albano. Albano. Number eight was Classy Freddie Blassie. Number seven, scary or, in our eyes, sensational Sherry Martell. Number six, Missy Hyatt. So hot. Now, and then that's going to take us to 
our top five. Uh, I'm hitting my table there again because I was trying to grab, and we at the 23-minute mark, we know this show only has to last 45 minutes today, and I want to make sure we give equal amount of time if we can, going into our top five greatest wrestling managers of all time if we can. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go with number five, Yes, Gary Hart. What a good number five right there. Yeah. I was so glad when that name popped up when you sent me a list back as we was interchanging. Also, we had a lot of great fan interaction, and Gary yes. Hart made a lot of fans top ten, and they had him up there in the top five as well. So I don't think we're too far off with picking Gary Hart as number five. Yeah, so the one, I'm going to point this out real quick because you have to kind of take Gary Hart. You have to have kind of a, a complete picture of why I would go with him. He was the booker in WCCW when WCCW got hot, and I mean red hot. It was a little Dallas promotion that you know people in Israel were watching, and it was it was just blowing up. Gary Hart also played a manager on the show, you know, and he had guys like uh, Gino Hernandez, Chris Adams. He had a full stable of just shit-sucking heels. And one of the things that I remember almost as clear as I can remember anything, there was the episode where Kevin Von Erich is standing in the ring telling Chris Adams just to dump Gary Hart and everything <laughs> else will be forgiven. And it, it it almost sounded like a Southern preacher telling somebody, you know, just put the devil behind. I'll forgive all your sins. Come on back to Jesus. And yeah. <laughs> Gary Hart was almost synonymous with the devil in that promotion. <laughs> there you go, man. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add on to that, although I have read his book, and so uh, we discussed it off there, and you've got a copy coming. And don't be jealous out there in, in podcast land, because I do have a uh, PDF file of the Gary Hart book, and my friend Jeremy's going to have a copy of it as well, because I'm going to share it with them. If you'd like to have your shared copy, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's my heel coming out right there. Now, anyway, um, I think you'll really enjoy that. And the other thing about Gary Hart, he was in that plane crash in Tampa and survived that with uh, uh, Buddy Colt, a uh, young yeah. Mike uh, McCord, Austin Idol, and then, of course, we lost Bobby Shane in that uh that wreck in Tampa Bay back, I think, in 1975. But Gary Hart was a, a plane crash survivor and, and just kept on getting out there in the grind and had a really good mind um, booking and, and, of course, being that heel manager. And I, and I think that, um, you know, he's deservingly so in our top five. And he comes in at number five, which is going to take us to number four, and that is Jimmy, the mouth of the South, Hart. What do you say? Well, there's a whole lot to say about Jimmy Hart. Um, of course, he <laughs> he had had a full career as a heel manager before I even had ever heard of him. You know, because yeah. I didn't know about Memphis till well after I'd started watching wrestling. Um, you know, but he's one of those guys. I mean, he's up there with uh, Lou Albano for like you know people that held titles while he was managing them. Yeah. Every major name went through his hands. I believe that uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine was the IC champion when he was uh, managed by Jimmy Hart. It's just you, you really have to spend like a whole hour just looking at who he managed when they were important. Yeah. Well, I won't spend an hour, but I could. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Hart is a really good guy. I saw Jimmy Hart uh, this past October. Nothing but love for Jimmy Hart. Let me tell you, he's one of the classiest people, one of the most uplifting, 
it's all good. It's okay, baby. It, it, it'll be fine. And I got to see Jimmy Hart as a heel, you know, growing up on a Memphis product. And man, you know, Jimmy Hart was out there just running his mouth and every angle he had, you know, first family, he had this, he had that, he had his nose and everything. Of course, he had a, a musical background. Uh, I couldn't tell you all the things, I guess, songs for eventually WCW, WWE and everything. He, cause he was with the uh, Gentries. They had a number one hit. Yep. Uh, him and Lawler for years had heat with each other. Uh, you know, when he started off rest or managing down in there. Uh, in a Memphis territory, so you can't even come from the Mid-South Coliseum without mentioning, you know, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Uh, Jimmy is just one of those guys, when WCW was, was shutting down, I saw guys, 150 guys, go down to 75 guys, and we could see the writing on the wall, and we're not going in that, but Jimmy Hart, one of the few, it just kept telling the boys, keep your head up, I'm trying to keep your, I'm trying to keep you a job here, baby, just do this TV for me, and he was producing some of the TV segments, you know, and just a sweetheart of a man, and uh, like I said, when I saw him in October, he came up to a show, and and he he flew in, done a show in Cincinnati, drove about three hours, done a show, and man, he was just you know fresh as a rose. Come in, got up on stage, went downtown to this little town area. Hey, we're gonna have wrestling at two o'clock, everyone. You know, blah blah blah. And man, he just got up there, and he is just a sweetheart of a man. I can't say enough good things about my love. For uh, Jimmy Hart, I may have hated him when I was young as a heel manager. You know, it goes back to one of those things. He's gonna get the shit slapped out of or whatever. Yeah. But uh, one of those things where, um, uh, as we'll get going on here, um, Jimmy Hart's just one of the top to me. He he comes in at a at a real secure and safe number four. Jimmy, the mouth of the South Hart. Yeah, absolutely. Um... The fact that you hated him just said how good he is at his job. Right. Um, also, you're right. He he wrote a, a lot of songs for WCW. That's why knockoff songs are often called Jimmy Hart versions, because he did a lot of sound like you know uh, DDP sounding like uh, Nirvana's "Smell for Teen" or "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Jimmy Hart is a fixture in wrestling, and he is a surprising 75 years old. Mm. Well, I wasn't going to give his age because I thought he was about 72 or 73. So I didn't know. He said, because when I was talking about that show, he had flown in from, from Florida to Cincinnati, done a show from Cincinnati is about a three hour drive to a show. And when he showed up, you'd have thought the guy, he had the energy of a 15 year old. Mm -hmm. I'm serious. He came early. He, he came early and stayed late. Like I said, he went down into the town that was where the section where the wrestling wasn't at. It was about three blocks away, and he went up on stage in between a couple of bands and talked. To, you know, he really promoted the wrestling. And he come back up there and was, you know, of course, signing autographs and taking pictures. And then he did. Uh, he was in the main event, of course, as a manager. And then afterwards, he stayed around and signed every autograph. You know, knowing he still had a three-hour ride back to Cincinnati to to stay all night to catch a flight the next day. So, man. Again, I, I knew it was at least 72, but, man, I'm telling you what, that guy, he, he is full of energy, man. And, uh, uh, again, nothing but love and respect for Jimmy Hart. So, so thanks for mentioning that uh, because I, I wasn't going to bring up the age part because he was like a spring chicken out there, man. Yeah. Let me tell you. Well, Dude, he, he gave the people the money's worth then some. That's that, I, I, you know, I don't know if he doesn't want that revealed or not. I just, when I meet older people like that who are up and out and fucking grinding and just hustling. I yeah. met the lady who was the life model for Tinkerbell a couple of times. 
And she's like 86, 87 years old, and she drove herself to conventions by herself and got up and gave a better stage presentation than everybody else at these conventions that I used to uh, MC at. Yeah. And you're just like, God damn, I need a nap at 2 o'clock. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. So, and I don't think he does mind as, as age being revealed because, you know, I know every year on Twitter, people wish him a happy birthday. So it's, you know, some things aren't with social media. It's not a secret. Yeah. So heck, you know, that's just that, but we're putting it over anyway. So, um, I, I hope, I'm, hell, I hope I'm still around at that age. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's, yeah. You know. So let alone being active and getting up and doing some kind of a, you know, uh, MCing or, or presentation or, or, or signing autographs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Let's go uh, to our top three. How about that? All right. Well, with number three, we're going to go to James J. Dillon. Yes. Now, you you and J.J. Uh, Dillon have something in common. You both started your careers in the Canadian Maritime region. Yes, that's correct. And I brought that to his attention upon meeting him. And we have a mutual friend, um, Les Thatcher, who was actually out there as well. Les is a great guy. Went on, uh, done so much in wrestling. And, of course, he, he, he announced in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and that's one of the reasons that when I when I met J.J. and he knew that I knew the Burke family or the Cormier family up in the Maritimes, that I had been somewhere and done something as far as getting a job with WCW. And also he knew that I knew less from Smoky Mountain, you know, and, and we all had those. We knew those towns, and so we did have that in common. And I think... Um, I think there was a little bond built, if you would, or if you will, because J.J. was always really nice to me and good to me, uh, very honest with me. In fact, J.J. was the one that I'd be on a road somewhere, and we always spoke to each other, But and we'll get into his managing in just a second. But as a person, I think he's just a class act, stand-up guy. Uh, he called me when my contract was expiring, and on those contracts, you have a 90-day rollover, and I was there in WCW, he called me, let me know he was the one, you know, I have to make these calls. And he said, you know, some paper is going to be coming in the next couple of days. You know, you're getting your release or what have you. But I admire the fact that, you know, he was the one taking the time to call everyone. And he and I had a conversation about it. And, of course, he already knew it was coming out because I got the pink slip the next day yeah. uh, via, via FedEx. But he was doing his part as a professional. But, but him to take the time to tell me what is going on and why it's going on had nothing to do with talent. Obviously, people know that now uh, for anyone that got released during those times because it, the company was crumbling, you know. And like I said, Jimmy Hart was telling people when he was down on a staff of 75 crew going, guys, I'm just trying to keep your jobs, you know. J.J. was always the voice of reason, you know, and understanding would at least listen to you, uh, tell you to have a good match or give you that word of encouragement or what have you. So uh, I, don't, I don't know if he did that for everyone because I wasn't one of the bigger stars there, but I know he'd done it for me, and I think it's because of that connection where I started out in the Maritimes, as did he. And I know he went to Florida and then down to uh, up to the Carolinas with the Crocker Promotions. So uh, J.J., um, he just wanted to... From uh, time he was a young man, he wanted to be involved in professional wrestling. He knew that as a young man, and I admire that too. And that's what he got to do is become a wrestler and become one of the greatest managers of all time. Uh, of course, what the greatest famous probably the Four Horsemen. 
Absolutely. Or am I jumping ahead? Come no, on, no, no, no. I'm, talk, I'm talking too much personally. You talk to them. Talk to us professionally. Give us a little background, JJ. I, I'm sorry about that. Well, JJ, you know, he, like I said, he started his career up in the Maritimes. He made his Madison Square Garden debut when he got popped by the Flying Burrito from Tito Santana and uh, lost a match to him by pinfall. But JJ is best known as basically the fifth horseman. He was the manager of the horsemen when they were when they were first created. And then when they lost Ole and guys like Luger and Wyndham would come in, he was still there. He was there until he left uh, late 80s when he left for uh, WWF and worked the front office there. J.J. was also Dusty Rhodes' right-hand man in Jim Crockett Promotions. Apparently, J.J. Dillon is a walking computer of details and specifics and organization. That is everything I have on him, yeah. however. Well, I read his book, too, um, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, I think is the title of it. Um, it's a really good read. It really is. I think he got that title uh, was from a quote that Vince McMahon Sr. said. But um, pretty good book, pretty good book. I really enjoyed it. I've got it on my Kindle. But, uh, again, nothing but respect for J.J. Dillon. And with that said, I think I'll take us to number two, if you don't mind. Yeah, please do. Okay. Well, number two. Greatest manager of all time. I've got a personal story I'd like to share, just two of them. But uh, I'm going to come up number two with Bobby the Brain Heenan. And uh, that's oh, just on. my number Wait. two. Wait. Number two? Number two, Bobby so, the Brain Heenan. So I have. Hold on here. Hold on. Hold on. We get all the way to number two, and then you decide to go off script. Well, because I just had a couple things to say here. I've, I've got to. Um, oh, fuck I'm man. not done. I just wanted to say number two to me is Bobby the Brain Heenan because he managed so many good teams. You know, we uh, we, we discussed. Hold on, hold on. We, we discussed this ahead of time, and now you're going to change it. I mean, go ahead and shoot your shit, motherfucker. Okay, but. well, okay. I, this okay. First of all, I'm just telling you this way I feel. I don't care what you've got written down. This is what I got written down, and I just wanted to mention that while I was in. WCW, I got to a pay-per-view pre uh, 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 post-production meeting a little bit early. I walk in, there's Bobby Heenan at the bar. I walk over, sit down, we talk. And just a few years earlier, I had been doing WWF. I'd done about eight TVs at the time. And on one of them, you know, I'm the ham and egg out there getting beat. And here he is. He's, hey, kid, how are you? Have a drink with me. And we sit down for like a half an hour and had some personal time. And also, and I'm not trying to bring it down a note, but I, or a notch, I will just say that I got to speak to Bobby Heenan on a national television, a national radio show when he was in remission. I called in. He remembered, took the call. The, the, the person, Lionel, who had been in Tampa, Florida, radio personality, was on a national level. They took my call, and I got to speak to him. And he, it was really an awesome time. And so I have a little bit of a connection to Bobby Heenan. That's about it. I know what a great manager he was. I know that um, I'm just going to tell you right now. I know that J.J. Dillon and my number one both think that Bobby the Brain Heenan was the number one manager of all time. I'm just saying I, I've got him coming at number two, man. And so with that said, I was going to tell you, my number one is Jim Cornette. He's the greatest wrestling manager of all time. That's my number one, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, 
Jim Coronet might have been a great manager, but he isn't fit to carry Bobby Heenan's jacket. Okay? I, I don't know... You know, we, we do these lists ahead of time, and then you go and you do this shit. So <laughs> let, let me put it this way. Number two is Jim Coronet, James E. Coronet, and number one is Bobby Heenan. So that's that's how this list is supposed to go, I'm pretty sure, right? I'm yeah. busy texting my Bobby lawyer. Bobby Heenan, number two, James E. Cornette, my manager, coming in at number one, because if he, Jim Cornette, I, and I wrote it in my book, Pin Me, Pay Me, I can't backtrack well, now. Well, here's, I know here's, that him and, and J.J. say Heenan's the greatest manager of all time. I'm just telling you, to me, Jim Cornette is the greatest professional wrestling manager of all time in my eyes. He was smart enough to hire me. Do I need to say any more? You know, you get a guy to write the intro to your book, and now you can't get his uh, hand out of your pocket, apparently. <laughs> Jesus well, Christ. He, Man, the Midnight Express, man, all the, he got. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's Jimmy look Hart at that. Jimmy gave him his first pair of knee pads and elbow pads and said, you're going to need these. He went from being a photographer and, and to being a manager to, to, to one of the greatest tag teams of all time, the, the Midnight Express, to have one of the greatest rivalries of all time that we went over last week. I mean, come on, man. Cornette, he, he's the man. Uh, he's worked for every major. He's he worked for every major professional wrestling company in the United States the, at one point or another on booking committees and and managing and photography and and writing articles, man. And a guy no one could talk like James E. Cornette, man. He, he's got one of the best podcasts out there too. Oh, so, jeez, do you owe you this know. guy money or something? I probably do. Uh, he saw one of my DVDs and he said, Bobby, you know some of those matches are mine, don't you? And I think he's trying to hit for 10%, but I, I didn't budge on it. But Oh, well, be careful because he, <laughs> he might have Lefty call you and then it's bad. Yeah, I think his there. manager Swifty, actually. Oh, is it Swifty? So, yeah, I yeah, think okay. so. Good, because I'm looking I'm for his phone number because I'm getting ready to sue you for breach of contract. <laughs> so you're saying Jim Cornette is the number two greatest wrestling manager of all time. And your number one is who? Bobby the Brain Heenan. Look, look Jim Cornette, yeah, and the Midnight Express were a good tag team, but what they get? Like two U.S. tag team titles and one or two world titles, and that's it? Look, look Paul Heenan managed the Midnight uh, Express. And, and he's not even on his top he, ten list. He's not even on the list. So, I mean, Midnight <laughs> Express, Midnight Express, they don't, they don't, that's nothing extra. Heenan managed Andre the Giant. Heenan managed world champion Nick Bockwinkle. Heenan managed Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Duncan Sr., and uh, Ray Stevens. I don't see how you, Cornette's good, that's fine, but he's number two. That's, that. That's all there is. I mean, I don't know how you get much more than that. Well, you know what? You know what? As a matter of fact, hold on. I'm going to tell you something. As of right now, you're saying Bobby Heenan is number one, and I'm saying Jim Cornette's number one. And it looks to me like we are at the 44 minute and 30 second mark. So if you got something to get out, you better get out in less than 30 seconds, pal. Yeah, you I, said I, this is a 45 minute time limit podcast. Yeah, okay, today. okay, okay. I got, right now, I got it. I got it. I got Cornette, and you've got Heenan. So say what? Say you now. Okay, I, I can cover all this right now. So, so coming in at number two, James E. Coronet. Coming in at number one, Bobby the Brain Heenan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm afraid we are out of time for Bobby and myself. Bye-bye, everybody. Absolutely. Without a doubt. If they didn't say, if they didn't say Bobby Heenan, I was going to get up out of this chair right here and rip that paper up. Bobby Heenan at number one is without a doubt 
something I could never, ever, ever argue with. Bobby Heenan's the best manager ever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> All right. Bobby the Brain, man. He can talk. You make, I can make you laugh, too. You know, him and Jerry the King Lawler, you know, uh, you know, obviously we're not talking about, you know, Jerry the Manager or whatever, but as guys that can make you laugh, like listening to like a WrestleMania or something like that, Bobby the Brain was great. I can't argue with Bobby Heenan being number one. Bobby Heenan, the, the man who kept Nick Bockwinkel, who is a good talker, very intelligent man, but kept the two of them were like a partnership, like their own little corporation. Uh, Bobby Heenan was an incredible manager. He was one of the earliest managers. Uh, I remember Bobby Heenan when he was a wrestler and how he used to study all the, uh, the, the matches that were out there. And when they made him a manager and somebody nicknamed him the weasel, he is the epitome of a weasel. He's a perfect manager. He would be one, two, three, four, and five in my book. He had it all. He was, he was a genius. I mean, he, was, he, he just, there was no one like him, never will be. He's, he takes all five spots in my book. Bobby was great. Um, I mean, he was, you know, prevalent on TV when I was watching as a fan in the 80s. You know, um, he's one of, one of the best out there. I'm sure he probably deserves to be number one. Like, if it was my personal list, I would put Cornette, but Bobby's right up there. Um,